Hello and thanks for joining us on Search for Truth today. It's great to have you with us. Our Bible teacher Brian Johnston is looking each week at a different New Testament scripture in relation to our deepening friendship with Jesus and to see if we can learn from it to develop a closer bond which is in keeping with his will for us. And this week begins in Acts chapter 2 and putting knowledge into action. And here's Brian. Thanks, John. Some people learn the simple ABC approach to following our Lord. First, A, they accept Christ in their heart by faith as their personal saviour. And then B, it's about being baptised, where the baptism is a sign of the fact that they're following Christ. And thirdly, C, they commit to local biblical church fellowship, as the first Christians did in Acts 2 and verse 42. Soon they learn that the local church is not the physical building it meets in, but the people who gather there. And they gather under the guidance of not just one leader, but under multiple lay elders. These elders are coordinated across an entire community made up from the pooling of the local church fellowships. What this gives is an integrated approach in true worship that's spiritual in character. But more on that later. For all that we said by way of introduction, Acts chapter 2 and verses 41 and 42 is a useful summary. It's there we read of the first Christians that those who had received his word were baptised, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. But we need to be sure that we view this in the context of the entire book of Acts, and indeed in the light of the whole New Testament, in which we find a widespread community of Christ followers who were known corporately as the Way. The origins of this movement can indeed be traced back to Acts chapter 2, and it was a well-defined movement. They were together, it says in Acts 2.44, or as we might say, they were on the same page. They were following the one who'd famously described himself as the way in John 14 and verse 6. And they were growing, for we read that the Lord added to them in Acts 2 and verse 47. The word added shouldn't be overlooked for the reason that it was used then for any change of political government of cities and provinces. Its relevance here then would be to signify very strongly that with these believers of the way, there had been a distinct change away from being governed by the teachings of the party of the scribes, and now they were adhering to the rule of Christ's teaching given through his apostles. And this was how the way as a movement expanded. It was by divine initiative, as the Lord himself added others to them. Others didn't just take it upon themselves to join, the emerging movement was marked out by God as to its boundary, and he moved individuals across that border to come inside. In summary, while salvation and baptism must be undertaken as individuals, that's not the full picture. And even once an individual was added, there were four keys for spiritual health and growth. These were, as we read, devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and to the church prayers. Many Christians are drawn to the idea of getting back to doing the same today as the primitive Christians did. 
But the problem is, they all seem to end up doing different things from each other. It's the result of ripping out selectively chosen parts of the story and creatively recombining them. A more responsible approach is to recognise the limitations of a narrative text, such as we found in the book of the Acts. First, we have to search for the author's original intention, which on the largest scale isn't difficult to find. The historian Luke is narrating how a small Jerusalem-based group emerging from Judaism grew into a worldwide phenomenon that became mainly Gentile. To do this, he traces the way from Jerusalem to Rome, and he paints the story in six panels, as it were, each ending with a summary statement of the ongoing progress of God's word. The main message is about the progress of the gospel in the power of the Spirit, in which all manner of internal and external obstacles are overcome, and the last word of the whole book is literally unhindered, which brings us to a very inspiring crescendo indeed. Luke's literary technique is to tell the overall story as the story of two missions, Peter's to the Jewish world and Paul's to the Gentile world. Each of these are sequels to Christ's mission to announce the good news of God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is a term that we find at the beginning and in the middle and at the end of the book of the Acts, inviting us to conclude that throughout the content of this volume is showing us the shape of God's kingdom, the shape it took during the first century. The citizens or subjects of that kingdom were precisely those whose response to the teaching of the apostles, like Peter and Paul, had brought them into the first century churches of God. But this is not so much anyone's biography, neither Peter's nor Paul's, as it is in some sense an autobiography of the Holy Spirit. Although it has to be said that there's a very even-handed treatment of the two principal human characters, both ministries are sketched out with recorded sermons, signs, visions and periods in prison. In fact, it's as if, certainly as this played out to a Jewish readership, Paul's credentials are being matched like with like with those of Peter. Of course, there's also a light dusting of supernatural signs which mark the transitions from Jews only to Hellenistic Jews to Samaritan half-Jews to God-fearing wannabe Jews till we get to the full-blooded Gentiles. The notable signs which attended these various transitions were to show how all these people groups were included on equal terms in the one body of all true believers. So there's the overall intended picture. But en route from Jerusalem to Rome, we read of many happenings. And the vital question for us today is this. Are these happenings just to be treated purely as things that did happen then? Or are they also things that must happen now? That's the most important question we can ask, relevant to deciding how we should do church today. Did it only happen that way then, or must it happen that same way now? How people answer that leads to many differences between Christians. So how do we decide what must happen? Well, when things are commanded of people the same as us, the intention is clear, the same must happen today. But what about when things are only, shall we say, incidentally recorded? In those cases, are we duty-bound to repeat history or not? 
Some cultural things dating from the first century are not for repetition in every modern culture. For example, Christian men greeting one another with a holy kiss. Whereas we'd be justified in repeating other things. But even so, are they mandatory? Well, the case for any given first century recorded practice being mandatory today is strongest when it forms part of a consistent, non-ambiguous pattern and when it was repeatedly followed back then, giving uniformity of practice across the primitive churches, and where its meaning is explained later in the Bible letters that follow, and when it was something that was also anticipated by Old Testament types and shadows. On that careful basis, the modern churches of God are a restorative movement, one which doesn't continue with the one strategic sign gifts, but does continue with the same role for women and biblical church discipline that Paul later defended at Corinth based on Old Testament principles and were practised by all the first century churches. The churches of God do de-emphasise the role of musical instruments since they, in a way that can be judged significant, receive no explicit endorsement in the New Testament. And above all, these churches serve the pattern of those primitive times in terms of the following five particulars. First, that there was only one church per city. Church here being a local church as distinct from the church the body, of course. And two, that for any baptised believer to be added to one of those churches meant that he or she was added to them all. Thirdly, that in each church there were elders appointed. Fourthly, that since the churches were connectional, that is, not independent, these elders were coordinated in their service. And number five, this made it possible for the overall community to claim to be God's house on earth. This is what's understood to be the faith or body of doctrine, the same as Paul calls the standard or the pattern of teaching, which was to be something to be guarded. And he also refers to it as the mould or pattern of teaching, as he wrote to the Romans about. In summary, what we're saying is this approach to doing church is the result of applying one distinctive key to interpretation, and that is to take Acts, the book of Acts, to be prescriptive as well as descriptive. And what's more, there's one distinctive differentiation in word meaning, and it's between the biblical word for church being distinguished as to when it relates to the universal church, the body on the one hand, and when it relates on the other hand to individual local churches of God. When our method of Bible study is carefully performed on a consistent basis, it can be claimed that the original apostolic pattern of teaching once again becomes clear. The confirmation has to be that what results makes best sense of the Bible's bigger picture of how God has always wanted a people, a house and a kingdom that would serve him in his way.
I hope you enjoyed Brian's talk today and if it's raised any comments or questions for Brian, do get in touch and I'll be giving you some addresses in a moment. There's also a transcript book for all the talks in this series and it's available free on request by asking for the title Our Relationship with Jesus Christ. You can order the book by email or by post and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, the Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon SN4 8DY UK. I'll read that again. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon SN4 8DY UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info And you might be interested to know that many titles of Search for Truth transcript booklets have been turned into e-books and are available at amazon.co.uk forward slash kindle hyphen e-books. Just type Search for Truth series into the search box and there you should find them. Now that's all we have time for today, but many thanks for the privilege of your company. I look forward to you joining us again next week. In fact, I'd be delighted if you could join us when Brian will be choosing another section of New Testament Scripture to see how it helps in our relationship with Jesus and enrich it. So, until then, it's very best wishes from Brian, from David, and our singers, and me, John. So bye for now, and may God indeed richly bless you. When doubts and fears arise, teach me thy way. When storms